Ben had a dream to go to medical school and to become a surgeon. But first of all, he had to pass college chemistry, and that wasn't looking good. He was failing the class, and he had to ace the final in order to pass the class. He was doing so poorly, he was even praying to God, asking God to reveal to him if he was even in the right place, if he was doing the right thing. He was going to pull an all-nighter, but sleep overcame him. While he was sleeping, he had a dream. In his dream, he was in a large auditorium, and an unknown figure walked into that room and started doing chemistry problems on the board. The next morning when he went and took the test, he thought he was in an episode of the Twilight Zone because the first question on that test was one that this unknown figure had worked on the board the night before. And the next. And the next. And the next. He aced that test, passed the class, and promised God he'd never make him come through for him like that again. Ben went on to accomplished the thing that he had set out to do to become a surgeon. In fact, he became the youngest director of pediatric neurosurgery in the country. He separated twins conjoined at the brain. He performed the first successful neurosurgery on a fetus. He was awarded the nation's highest honor for a civilian, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. A 2014 poll named Benjamin Solomon Carson, one of the top 10 most admired people in the world. He even made a bid for the presidency of the United States. All because a dream helped him pass a chemistry class 50 years ago. Now, what are we supposed to make of a story like that that was told by Lee Strobel? Was it a coincidence? Was he fabricating the whole story for the sake of a political career? Was it a miracle? I've got another question, too. Where was that unknown figure when I was in college? (laughs) Today we're starting a brand new sermon series called Miracles. We're going to be taking a look at miracles that are recorded for us in the Bible and specifically the miracles of Jesus. And I suspect that as we bring up this whole topic, it meets with a number of different opinions among the people who are listening. And welcome today in the worship center, welcome on the Moon Campus, maybe online, wherever you are watching in today, we're glad that you're here. But a number of different opinions. What are miracles? What are we to think about them today? Are they still possible for today? Are there things we ought to expect in our lives today? Some people just very readily accept miracles and believe they see them all around them in the world today. They're the ones who see God miraculously trying to speak to us through socks that are hung on a clothesline. If you can see the face there. Or on a salt spray on an underpass or maybe even on a burnt fish stick. The face of Jesus is there, I guess. Other people aren't quite so readily to accept these sorts of things, but they have their own situation where they've had a tumor that has shrunk, and the doctors say, I'm not sure why. 
There are others who are more skeptical, a bit more guarded. They see a faith healer come into town or on television and someone who's been in a wheelchair for 15 years all of a sudden is up and dancing and it's just met with skepticism, doubt, belief that they're being deluded in some way. But even for the most skeptical among us, there is still something about this idea that miracles could still be possible today because the fact of the matter is we all need a miracle at some time or another. Today we're asking, who needs a miracle? And the answer is, I do. The answer is, you do, from time to time. Because there's somebody here today who's got a wayward child. They've gone off in their own direction, and you've been praying for them, you've been hoping for them, you've been doing everything that you possibly could do for them, but they're still wayward, and you're still wishing that they would just come back, because you know they're going to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt somebody else, and you are at the end of your rope. You don't know what to do. And it's just going to go bad unless you can get a miracle. For some of you, it might be your marriage. Your marriage is on the rocks, and it is bad. In anger, you have said and you've done things that you shouldn't have done, and they've been reciprocated back to you. And really today, the only thing that you're wondering about is not when, is not if you're going to get divorced, but when. For others of you, you're facing a chronic illness, a progressive disease, something that is taking away the life from your body, or that's happening to maybe a loved one of yours, and you're just calling out and you're pleading with God because the only thing that looks like it's going to make any change at all is if there's a miracle. And then you hear a story about somebody else who has received their miracle, but you haven't gotten yours. Why not? Kind of makes you start to wonder, are miracles even real? Are they even really possible? Do they still happen in our world today? Because they haven't happened for you in the way that you've been calling out. We've been praying here around Pathway for quite some time for a dear sister who's been battling her own cancer. We've been praying for a miracle for her. Her funeral's tomorrow. What's up with that? We face these circumstances and we wonder. Well, to try to start to get down to the bottom of it, I think we need to rewind just a little bit and set the table and lay a little bit of groundwork. And there are a few questions I want to address that are there on your outline that I want to take a look at. And the first of those is, what is a miracle? Let's just try to define it if we can here. It's a supernatural event where an exception to the ordinary course of nature takes place for the purpose of accomplishing the purposes of God. First of all, we have to say it's a supernatural event. It is only something where there's been a divine intervention on God's part that secondly changes the nature or changes the way that nature typically operates. What you might expect otherwise to have happened or what could be explained away just by the way things normally happen. And the last of those things is it's for the purposes of God. It's to carry out His purposes here in our world so that the glory might be given to Him. It's not ultimately even for the one receiving the miracle. Ultimately, we need to say that it is for the purpose of glorifying God. But I don't just want to talk to you today about what a miracle is. I want to take a look at an actual miracle. In fact, 
one that has been considered to be by many people the greatest miracle ever. And I'm not talking about the 1980 USA hockey win over the Soviet Union. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that Roseanne is back on television. As unbelievable to me as that is. The greatest miracle wouldn't even be if the Pirates win the World Series this year. Though that would be up there. Based on what everybody says, it seems a shame that we're already trashing their season before it even begins. The greatest miracle of all has been considered by many to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His victory over the grave. And so that's what I want to take a look at. But instead of just crowning it the greatest achievement, the greatest miracle ever, I want to rewind here again a little bit and take a look at it from the standpoint of what exactly is involved. And can we even say definitively that yes, this was a miracle, or yes, this even happened. So we're going to take a look at it for a few moments together here today. Yes, from a biblical point of view, but also from a secular point of view. What are secular scholars and skeptics saying? Historically, can we trust it as something that actually happened? So that's what I want to look at. The second question, what are the historical realities when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. There are actually four that I want to highlight for you today in an acronym. I'm just calling PEAR, P-E-A-R. There's so many that we could have made it pomegranate, but we're just going to boil it down to PEAR for today, all right? So let's go ahead and get started with those. The first important reality to consider was a proper burial. Today, some have suggested that the body of Jesus wasn't properly buried in an actual tomb, so claims that he rose again aren't reliable because nobody really knew for sure where it was that he was buried. But that's a, that's a modern day putting back on what had happened. That wasn't a circumstance that actually happened in the day, an objection that was raised in the day. In fact, it was very solidly confirmed. And uh, one of the proofs oftentimes that tells you that things are certain is because there's extra detail. And in this case, we've got that detail all the way down to the name of the person whose tomb it was, which is Joseph of Arimathea. In Mark chapter 15, we read these words, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. That would have been an unlikely fabrication on the part of the disciples if they had just made this up because Joseph was a member of the council, the council that actually condemned Jesus to death, so it's unlikely that he would have been the one chosen. And likewise, it wouldn't have been likely for the council to have made up that he was the person either because he was one of their own who now was aiding and abetting this criminal. On top of that, just as telling is the fact that there's no competing burial story that exists. If the disciples had said, well, he, the, the tomb was here and that's not really where it was, somebody would have taken by them by the hand and said, this is where it was, let me show you. It was only Sunday now and it had happened on Friday. People knew. According to John Robinson of Cambridge University, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Which leads us to the second historical reality, which is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. All of the gospel accounts contain the testimony of Jesus. He is not here. He has risen. 
He's not here. He has risen. But it's very interesting that the earliest Jewish responses to that claim were not to say, no, there is an, there is an occupied tomb, and let me take you and let me go show you. You disciples are just fanatics, and you are just a little bit loony tuned because here's, here's the tomb, and here's Jesus in that tomb. That's not what happened. There was no argument that the tomb was empty because they came and they actually claimed that Jesus stole the body right from the very start. This was their own acknowledgement that the tomb was empty. On top of that, the fact that the resurrection account indicates that the women were the first one to find the tomb is that much more telling because in that day and age, the testimony of women wasn't believed to be reliable. And so if someone had just made up the story, they would have made it up that a man would have discovered the empty tomb. As for the arguments that the body was stolen or that Jesus hadn't really died but only looked dead or that people got confused about where the tomb was, just dealing with the facts of Jesus' body having been examined before he came down from the cross with a spear in the side, they had proclaimed him dead. When he came down, he was known to be dead. There's that piece of evidence on top of that you've also got the fact that the tomb had been sealed that there are professional soldiers that have been guarding the entrance ever since his body was laid there it has most all modern scholars today admitting that there was an actual tomb that was empty a third historical reality has to do with appearances to many the list of all who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection is lengthy. We read some of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at some of this list. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared to James, James who at the time was actually a skeptic. So it wasn't just all people who were favorable toward the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. Obviously, it's a huge list of eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive when 1 Corinthians was written. So if it hadn't have been accurate, somebody would have stepped forward and said, that's not the way it went down. But nobody steps up and says that. Because that's the way that it went down. Kurt Ludeman, a leading critic of the resurrection, himself admits, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Last of the historical realities I want to point out here is resurrection belief. I want you to just think about the position that the disciples were in after the crucifixion. Their leader was dead. And for all they knew, they had just wasted three years of their lives following a false messiah. But what we don't see happening is them slinking their way out of Jerusalem, all dejected and going back home. What we find them doing is banding together, launching the church, and being willing to give their very lives as martyrs, being beaten and stoned and crucified themselves, some of them, for this belief that they had that Jesus was risen from the dead. Chuck Colson, who was the first of those in Nixon's administration to be incarcerated for his role in the Watergate scandal, said that Watergate is actually one of the things that proved to him the reality of the resurrection. He said this, we had 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years amidst beating and torture? Absolutely impossible. There is no way that they all would have gone to their death for a lie. But they did all die martyrs' deaths because what they died for 
was the truth. It was real. Jesus rose in victory over the grave. The truth of that resurrection of Jesus is historically accurate. It, pass, it passes the tests of reliability, these that we've shown and others as well. The problem for many who won't accept the evidence on face value is one of presumption. Because if we come to any issue with a preconceived idea of what the outcome has to be because it's just simply what we believe, then the facts really don't matter at that point. But I want, what, I want you to ur- what I want to urge you to do today is that you would set aside the preconceived notions, that you would set aside something that has has oriented you toward disbelief, maybe because of an in- interaction you had with some religious person or some church in your past, that you would set aside those things that would set you against the facts that are presented to us here today and open your mind and your heart to the truth of Jesus. There's one more question that remains, though. Even with that as an understanding, even if Jesus did rise from the dead, and that's, what difference does it make? Who cares? I mean, what difference does it make if he did? The resurrection of Jesus is great history, but it's more than history. It's great theology, but it's more than theology. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is hope, it is life, it is victory. That's what it is. It's victory not just in some sense, just for some person back at some time. It is victory for you. It is victory over the things that are causing you the trouble and the difficulty and the pain that exists in your life. It is a way to overcome because it is real and because the power that was available that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power to meet you in your need, in your sin, in your problem, in your issue. The things that have bound you and chained you to sin and death can be overcome and because of the resurrection you can be free that's the promise that's the promise paul said it very plainly in these words and if christ had not been raised your faith is futile you're still in your sins but if he has been raised that opens up the door to the supernatural in our world and if the door ever gets opened up to the supernatural in our world it is also opened up miracles are also opened up because that's what the resurrection is they too are opened up in our world in your world in your life That's what the resurrection really tells us. Without it, your faith is futile. We may as well just close up the doors and go home and and end this church stuff, end this belief. But if it really happened, then we don't just give ourselves part-time to who God is or what God wants. It requires all of us giving all of ourselves because that's the nature of its significance. If you're here today and you have previously at some point given your life over to Jesus Christ, then praise God for that. But if you are living under the the bondage and the weight of the circumstances that are going on in your life and you're just trying to slog through making the most of it day by day, then you need to recognize what it is that God has provided for you and live in the power of that. Maybe you were there at one point, but it's sort of been stripped away from you. And you would say, that's because of the circumstances that have come into my life. Well, friends, the circumstances that are present in your life are only opportunities for God to show himself that much more in the midst of your situation. If you'll lean into him, if you'll lean into his power and his presence in your life. 
Or you might be here today who's one who has never experienced any of that because you've never fully given yourself over to Jesus. You have never acknowledged Him as Lord and Savior in your life. You've been putting your trust in yourself for accomplishing your way forward, for getting yourself to the very best that you are hoping for. In fact, for your eternal salvation, which is something that you are interested in, you're trying to make your own way there. You're trying to provide for your own salvation and your own strength. And what the Scriptures tell us is that that's impossible. If you find yourself not being able to really rise above, well, there's your reason. But you can give yourself over to Jesus Christ today and you can experience that victory and you can experience that new life. Jesus, when talking about life and death, his own on the cross and ours said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die die. Today we're asking the question, we're asking this question, who needs a miracle? The answer is we all need a miracle. We all need the death of Jesus for our sins and the miraculous victory that comes through the resurrection for our victory over our own need. There are some who have suggested that the greatest miracle of all is not the resurrection, as important as that is. The greatest miracle of all is the fact that Jesus transformed a self-seeking, selfish person into one who gave themselves over to God. And there's an argument to be made for that. Because left to ourselves, the Scriptures say, we would have no interest in God whatsoever. So even really the fact that you're here The fact that you have opened up your mind to consider that Jesus may be, even if you haven't fully brought yourself over into that commitment and that full understanding, just the fact that you're interested says that God is speaking to you, inviting you to experience that miracle for your heart to transform your heart from a heart of stone to a heart that is softened and following after Jesus with all you are. And all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. And you have that opportunity in this moment, and I want to invite you into that relationship with Jesus Christ right now. Would you bow your head with me, please? If you're here today and that is a decision that you want to make, You recognize that you're living in your own power and in your own strength and trying to provide for your own future when really, because of the resurrection, you want to transform your mind and your heart and give yourself to Jesus and have that assurance of living for all eternity with Him. You do so simply by praying a prayer. You can do that just silently right now where you're sitting. Something like this. Dear God, Thank you for the miracle of the resurrection. Thank you that it raised Jesus to life and that you offer the promise of raising me to life, spiritual life now and eternal life to come. I admit that I am a sinner. I thank you that Jesus went to the cross to die for me. I thank you that he rose in victory over the grave making it clear that we can rise in victory over our own grave. 
I come to put my hope and my trust in you. Friend, if you've prayed that prayer while everybody's still bowing, if you would just slip your hand up, I would love to know that. I would love, I'd be encouraged by that. I'd love to pray for you. Yes, in the back, I see it. Yep. Others. Yes, on the center aisle, got that. Just to my right, yes. There are others this morning who want to give your heart and life to Jesus. near the back on my left. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for your spirit moving in our midst. And I thank you that we have hope and every reason to rejoice. And we come today and we celebrate those who are moving their way forward in new life. We just pray for their encouragement as it encourages our hearts to know that you're moving here. Father, we just pray your special blessing on each one. In Jesus' name, amen.